0: Welcome to NTD News Today.
1: Here are our top stories.
0: An exclusive look at the potential future faces of justice in this nation as senators delve into nominees for pivotal judicial roles.
1: Former President Trump wins in the New Hampshire primary with Nikki Haley not yet ready to throw in the towel. What Trump said in his victory speech. Trump celebrated the results with some Republican VIPs yesterday. Hear what they had to say about his big win.
0: In the wake of a harrowing Alaska Airlines jet incident involving a torn-off door, Boeing CEO this week meeting with lawmakers who are demanding answers.
1: A fiery plane crash in Russia reportedly killing all on board, including Ukrainian prisoners headed for an exchange. Moscow is pointing the finger at Kyiv. We bring you the details on the developing story.
0: Commuter chaos in Germany as train drivers begin a six-day strike. What they're demanding and how passengers are reacting.
2: This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stefania Cox and Chris Beers.
1: Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers.
0: And to begin the show, former President Trump wins the New Hampshire Republican primary, defeating candidate Nikki Haley. And on the Democratic side, President Biden wins the Granite State.
1: Trump won by double digits. He's now secured 12 delegates in the state compared to Haley's nine. Let's look at the results. GOP frontrunner Trump claiming about 54% of the vote with over 163,000 votes.
0: Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has about 43% of the vote, totaling just under 130,000 votes. 93% of the votes have now been counted. And the former president touting the latest results, sounding confident about upcoming races, including an all but certain matchup with President Biden
1: entity's White House correspondent Iris Tao was at Trump's watch party last night. She brings us the report.
3: Another decisive victory for former President Trump right here
2: in New Hampshire. This is a fantastic state. This is a great, great state. You know, we won New Hampshire. Three times now.
4: Three.
3: In history, no Republican presidential candidate has ever won the first two states and then not go on to win the ultimate nomination in the party. And Trump is sounding confident about the upcoming races and a potential face-off with President Biden in November.
2: We are going to win this. We have no choice. If we don't win, I think our country is finished.
3: While Trump took aim at his now only rival left in the party, Nikki Haley, She failed badly. he'd praise those who dropped out and endorsed him.
4: Now, if the exit poll and other numbers are to be believed... FOR THE FIRST TIME IN HISTORY, WE HAVE MORE DEMOCRATS AND INDEPENDENTS VOTING IN a GOP PRIMARY THAN ACTUAL REPUBLICANS. AND SO THAT MEANS THIS IS EFFECTIVELY A GENERAL ELECTION TESTING GROUND. AND IF HE WINS BY A REASONABLE MARGIN, THAT PREDICTS A LANDSLIDE IN NOVEMBER.
3: NIKKI HALEY, WHILE ACKNOWLEDGING TRUMP'S WIN, INSISTING THAT A RACE IS NOT OVER.
5: NEW HAMPSHIRE IS FIRST IN THE NATION. IT IS NOT THE LAST IN THE NATION.
6: AND THE NEXT ONE IS MY SWEET STATE OF SOUTH CAROLINA.
3: Nikki Haley is setting her sights on South Carolina, her home state, where she's already announcing campaign stops and planning to spend millions of dollars on advertisements. Meanwhile, Trump says he will win in both South Carolina and also Nevada, which is where the next race is coming up in just about two weeks. Reporting in Nashua, New Hampshire, Iris and NTD News.
0: The New Hampshire Republican primary set a record for the most votes ever cast in the contest. As of 8 a.m. Eastern Time this morning, CNN had tallied about 301,000 votes. That surpasses the nearly 288,000 ballots cast in the 2016 contest.
1: Previously, the most ballots ever cast in a New Hampshire presidential primary was roughly 300,000 in the 2020 Democratic contest. CNN estimates more than 320,000 votes will be cast this year in the Granite State's GOP primary.
0: And high-profile supporters of Trump were in New Hampshire last night to celebrate his victory. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Senate candidate Carrie Lake were among those in attendance.
7: The Republican Party completely rejected She's going into a state that probably loves him much more than they like her. And
8: he's going to wipe her out in New South Carolina. Uh, Nikki Haley has got to do some soul searching tonight. She's got to, as they say, breathe the room on and recognize
9: that this is no more Stood
0: up and new Republican representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Byron Donalds of Florida also attended.
1: Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy was on site as well.
0: Trump picked up a few new endorsements following his New Hampshire victory. Senator John Cornyn has declared his support for the former president.
1: Cornyn wrote on X that Republicans need to unite around a single candidate. He said that it's clear President Trump is Republican voters' choice.
0: The senator highlighted concerns about Biden's policies, mentioning the border crisis and high inflation, as well as foreign policies that he believes have made the world more perilous.
1: Cornyn's endorsement indicates growing support within Senate GOP leadership for Trump.
0: And here with us live to discuss the presidential primaries is Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project. He also led a successful congressional campaign for his father, Bobby Schilling, who served from 2011 to 2013. Terry, President Trump secured a significant victory over Nikki Haley last night. How do you assess the impact of this outcome on the broader conservative movement?
10: well listen I think that there's a there is a a message to be taken here and that message is that the Republican Party is no longer the party of big corporations and some type of neocon effort to spread democracy all over the world it's instead been transformed by President Trump to be the party of the American family working families that want to put food on the table and do better for them he look he run he won a resounding victory he, he was outspent by two to one and still won by double digit margin here uh, the big question is what is Nikki Haley's path to not just winning the nomination but winning a single state? Uh, Is she going to try and outspend Donald Trump four to one in the next state? Uh, She's down by 31 points in South Carolina. She's not even in the caucus in Nevada after that, so she can't actually win delegates. This is turning into a total joke um, and Trump is essentially the nominee and he's transformed the Republican
0: Party and she is vowing not to back down so how do you, do you think this sentiment will be shared by donors after last night
10: well, they're, the, the, the tricky thing is that the anti-Trump donors have already spent over $100 million to stop him, and they're getting their clocks clean. So they, they have to start running out of steam. The only question is, how much do they actually hate Trump? Because they hate him at least to, enough to spend $100 million against them. Do they hate him enough to spend another $100 million or another $200 million? It, the, the thing is that is frustrating for most Americans is that all this money is being spent in a worthless primary effort, Donald Trump is the nominee and it doesn't matter how much he can get outspent a hundred to one and he's still going to be the nominee by a resounding margin.
0: And we saw also uh, now RNC chair Ronald McDaniel McDaniel this morning calling on Haley to drop out. So this pressure is really building. Um, do you think what kind of pressure will she be facing from within her own party now? Well,
10: listen, I I think Nikki Haley at this point is an aberration in the party. Uh, She is a minority in the party and a a very small minority in the party. Uh, And so she's not listening to the majority of the party. The the polling has been very clear. Donald Trump has had an enormous lead nationally, an enormous lead in all of the early primary states and even the ones beyond. So I don't know if she's going to really listen to any of them. I think the only thing that matters for her is what the donor class does here. If they continue to fuel her campaign just to thwart Donald Trump, she'll stay in the race, I think, until the end, which is really unfortunate, especially for her future in the Republican Party.
0: And how do you see Nikki Haley's loss affecting, you know, the Republican discourse on social issues, uh, noting that she's been seen as softer on a lot of the issues that are important to conservatives?
10: Well, listen, I, I think that Donald Trump is the full package, right? Uh, I, I like to focus on these family issues like protecting girls' sports and protecting kids from this gender industry that's arisen. But ultimately, Donald Trump is great on all of the issues pertaining to the family, but he's incredibly good on the broader issues like inflation. Inflation affects our family. He's great on securing the border. I think voters know that Donald Trump is the guy that will secure our border, um, and I don't think they believe Nikki Haley was uh, would do that. So, um, you know, listen. And I, I think it was a rejection of Nikki Haley and her entire campaign platform because it's so out of line with what Republican voters are hoping to achieve in the next election.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project. Great, great to hear from you. Thank you. And so, how do we read Trump's victory in yesterday's primary? And what's what's next for the two Republican candidates? We take a look.
4: Former President Trump won the New Hampshire Republican primary with a little over half the votes. He beat Nikki Haley, who had 43 percent of the vote, by double digits. It's a strong showing for the former president, but the primary also exposed some potential vulnerabilities for him. The results show that Trump has a particular weakness with independents and moderate voters a demographic that his competitor Haley looked to for support in the build-up to last night. AP VoteCast, a survey conducted by the Associated Press and the NORC Center, found that some voters were concerned about Trump's electability in the November general election. New Hampshire is unique because it allows undeclared or independent voters to vote in primaries. VoteCast found that more than 4 in 10 GOP primary voters are not affiliated with any party. This draws in voters who are not necessarily party loyalists. Out of these voters, only one in five picked Trump. Haley could see those numbers as a win. She's planning to continue her campaign.
5: New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation.
4: But Trump is still the overwhelming choice among Republican registered voters. Even those who voted against him believe he would ultimately nab the nomination. According to VoteCast, eight out of 10 Republican voters, including more than half of Haley's supporters, think Trump will represent the party in November.
2: And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win, she lost, and you know.
4: The race will now move to Nevada, where Trump and Haley will take part in separate events. The next time they'll face off again will be on February 24th in South Carolina a state in which Haley served as governor for six years. Demographically, the state will be much more like Iowa, with a large population of evangelical Christians, a demographic that lined up behind Trump in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster has already endorsed Trump ahead of New Hampshire. A victory in South Carolina could prove crucial for both candidates before Super Tuesday on March 5th.
1: Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows is challenging a court order that put a hold on her decision to disqualify Trump in the upcoming primary election in her state. Bellows argues that this delay undermines her ability to organize a fair election on March 5th.
0: Bellows found Trump ineligible in December based on the 14th Amendment, but a court paused his removal from the ballot pending an appeal. The Supreme Court is set to hear the case on February 8th.
1: Bellow says a decision close to the March 5th primary would cause complications, especially if overseas and early ballots have already been distributed with Trump's name on them.
0: And former President Trump's gag order in another case remains in place. A DC federal appeals court turned down Trump's request to reevaluate what he can say about his 2020 election case.
1: The order was originally put in place by Judge Tanya Chutkin last year in the criminal case led by special counsel Jack Smith.
0: The court refused to rehear arguments about whether Trump can be prohibited from talking about court staff and witnesses.
1: No statements or dissents were made by the justices. This means Trump has one last chance to challenge the gag order if he chooses to do so with the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: And some of President Biden's top White House advisors will soon shift their roles to his campaign. The move comes as the Biden administration watches former President Donald Trump's quick move to the Republican nomination. According to a senior Biden advisor, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who was Biden's 2020 campaign manager, will transition to become campaign chair. Her current role is the White House deputy chief of staff. Senior advisor Mike Donilon will also move over to the campaign as its chief strategist. He will focus on the campaign's messaging and paid media strategies. The shift in titles is set to take place in the coming weeks. Biden's current campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, will remain in her role. The first Democratic primary cycle gets underway February 3rd. Next up, the Senate Judiciary Committee delves into the nominees for pivotal judicial roles.
1: They're looking at a number of U.S. District Court judge seats, and it's in Nebraska, Utah, Texas, and Wyoming, as well as a spot on the U.S. Court of Federal Claims.
0: Let's take a look at the potential future faces of justice in this nation.
11: This meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee will come to order. Today we have six judicial nominees. Judge Susan Bezos, nominated to the District of Nebraska, Mr. Ernest Gonzalez nominated to the Western District of Texas. Judge Anne-Marie McKiff-Allen, nominated to the District of Utah. Judge Kelly Rankin, nominated to the District of Wyoming. Judge Leon Scheidler, I hope I pronounced that correctly, also nominated to the Western District of Texas. And Judge Robin Merriweather, nominated to the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Congratulations to all the nominees and their families. As Senator Cornyn pointed out last week, several Senate Republicans, including himself and Senator Cruz, have identified well-qualified candidates for district court vacancies in their states. In fact, each of today's district court nominees has received blue slips from their Republican home state senators. So I'd like to thank my colleagues from Nebraska, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming, as well as President Biden, for this good faith bipartisan effort to fill these vacancies. I took that approach myself during the Trump administration, And it pointed out that we filled all eight district court vacancies in Illinois during those four years. Many of my Democratic colleagues did the same. Those efforts in today's panels are further proof that Senate's blue slip tradition can work as intended when we have bipartisan cooperation. I continue to urge my colleagues to make similar efforts in their states. I'm now going to turn to Senator Graham for opening remarks. If it's okay, Mr. Chairman, could
12: we
8: hear from our two colleagues and I'll make an opening statement so they can go on about their business? It's be short, but let them go and do speak.
11: I invite Senator Fisher and Senator Barrasso to speak. Who's first? Senator Fisher, please.
13: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member Graham. I'm here to express my support for Judge Susan Bases as she pursues confirmation to the judicial vacancy in the United States District Court for the District of Nebraska. I was honored to recommend Judge Basis for this position to the White House last year. Judge John Gerard, who previously served in this seat, assumed senior status last year. He has served Nebraskans justly and faithfully for the past three decades. Judge Gerard leaves behind an incredible legacy. He must be followed by an exemplary candidate with undeniable skill and integrity. And Judge Basis is exactly that. She has a keen legal mind and tremendous expertise and competence in applying the law. She has decades of experience as an attorney, a judge, and a public servant. Judge Basis is exceptionally qualified. The American Bar Association Standing Committee recommended her unanimously as well qualified, the highest possible rating. Her record speaks for itself. Judge Basis has served as a federal magistrate judge for the District of Nebraska for seven years. She is already highly familiar with the court, its processes, and its immense caseload. Unlike other district courts across the country, Nebraska's district judges intentionally use the court's magistrate judges to their fullest extent. This ensures maximum efficiency for the court. Judge Basis is accustomed to a busy docket of cases she must address quickly and thoroughly. This has prepared her well for the demands of Nebraska's federal bench. Over the course of her lengthy career, Judge Bases has had well-rounded experience in both criminal and civil law. Before she was selected for her current position, she was a Nebraska County Court Judge for Douglas County for nearly a decade. Her experience is not only reflected in her legal abilities, but also in her fair-minded temperament, her professional character, and her integrity. As part of her role as a magistrate judge, Judge Basis has demonstrated initiative and skill in a broad range of areas. Not only does she work tirelessly to administer justice impartially, but she works to make the court system more productive and effective. She focuses on ensuring security in the courts and using technology to increase judicial efficiency. She is also a member of the Consortium of Tribal, State, and Federal courts, where she works to improve the working relationship among the courts. She is dedicated to strengthening public trust in the judicial system and expanding access to that system. Judge Basis' qualifications and commitment to upholding our laws and our Constitution leave no questions about her ability to take on this role as a federal judge. Her confirmation to Nebraska's federal bench is also urgently needed to ensure that we fill this outstanding vacancy in a timely manner. I encourage all of my colleagues to enthusiastically support this nomination. I offer my sincere congratulations to Judge Basis for this honor, and I unequivocally recommend her for this seat. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
11: Thanks, Senator Fisher. Of course, we're happy to have you here, and as part of the program, we understand that the schedules of all of our visiting senators sometimes don't allow them to stay for the hearing, but we appreciate your being here. Thank you, sir. Now, recognizing the senators from Wyoming, Senator Barrasso. Uh,
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the committee for giving me this opportunity, and it's a great honor uh, to join Senator Lummis in introducing Judge Kelly Rankin at this hearing today. But I want to share my great appreciation to you personally, Mr. Chairman. For almost a year, we have talked about this well-qualified and bipartisan nominee. And now that the White House has made the nomination, I want to thank you for expediting the process, and thank you for all of your efforts. I wholeheartedly support the nomination of Kelly Rankin. I've known him for many years. Great to see his wonderful family here today as well. I'd like to recognize his wife, Cindy, is here. She's a speech pathologist at Cheyenne McCormick Junior High and Central High School. Many of you may also recognize the two sons that are here. Both participated as Senate pages. They went on the Senate floor with us. Harrison, currently a junior at the University of Wyoming, participated as a page sponsored by Senator Mike Enzi. And I sponsored Sam as a page in 2021. Sam is currently a freshman at the University of Wyoming. Now, Kelly's mom, Mandy, worked here in the Senate for many years working with then-Wyoming Senator Malcolm Wallop. As you can tell, Kelly Rankin's roots to our great state run deep. He's a Wyoming native, born and raised in Sheridan, went on to attend the University of Wyoming where he earned his Bachelor of Science degree and a law degree. His life has been dedicated to public service. Greatly respect Kelly Rankin's knowledge of the laws, dedication to the Constitution, For nearly 30 years, he has been a respected member of the Wyoming State Bar, served at almost every level of government, and he's going to bring years of valuable experience to the federal bench. Judge Rankin started his career as a deputy county attorney, spent nearly 18 years prosecuting cases in state and federal courts. In in 2008, he was confirmed by the Senate with a voice vote to serve as U.S. Attorney for Wyoming. He went on to work as the counsel for the uh, then-Democrat Governor of Wyoming, Dave Friedenthal. And I should add that Kelly has significant bipartisan support. Governor Friedenthal and Wyoming Democrat Governor Mike Sullivan both strongly support the nomination and Governor Sullivan was also President Bill Clinton's ambassador to Ireland. Currently, Kelly serves as the Chief United States magi- uh, Magistrate Judge. Mr. Chairman, Judge Rankin has my full support. His impressive record, incredible professionalism, and unwavering commitment to the Constitution will make him a great member of the federal bench. I ask each of you to support and quickly pass his nomination. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Senator, Chairman.
11: Senator Lummis?
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Graham. Uh, I wholeheartedly uh, join my colleague, Senator Barrasso, and thank you for the opportunity to introduce Judge Kelly Rankin to this committee. I could not be more supportive of Judge Rankin's nomination to the US District Court for the District of Wyoming. For the last 11 and a half years, Judge Rankin has served the people of Wyoming as a magistrate judge, deciding matters in criminal and civil cases spanning from Cheyenne in southeast Wyoming to Yellowstone National Park in the Northwest. He has even been called upon by the districts of Colorado and New Mexico to assist with caseloads in those jurisdictions. He's uh, the past uh, United States attorney, uh, an important matter of public service, also counsel to the governor and Park County attorney in Cody, Wyoming. While Judge Rankin has a wealth of experience in the law and the administration of justice. It is his judicial temperament and character that are most impressive. A judge must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and have an innate drive to understand all sides of an issue. Through all the opportunities I've had to interact with Judge Rankin over the years, I have found that he is a fine exemplar of all these qualities.
0: We are tuning in to a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing examining a number of U.S. District Court judge nominees in Nebraska, Utah, Texas, and Wyoming, as well as a nominee for a judge on the U.S. Court of Federal Claims.
1: Join us as we take a deeper look at the potential future faces of justice in this nation and what's being said about them.
9: Most importantly, I believe Judge Rankin will faithfully interpret the U.S. Constitution, the laws enacted by Congress, and the precedents of the U.S. Supreme Court and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. I also believe he will continue to be a committed public servant to the people of Wyoming and a very impressive uh, member of the judiciary of whom you will be proud. Uh, I'm certainly proud to recommend Judge Rankin for your consideration. I join Senator Barrasso in enthusiastic support of his nomination, and I'm happy to take any questions from this committee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back.
11: Thanks, Senator Lummis. We welcome our friends who have spoken on behalf of the nominees. We know they have to leave, but uh, you're always welcome at the committee. Now we have Senator Cornyn, who will introduce Mr. Gonzalez and Judge Scheidler. Well,
14: thank you, Mr. Chairman, for allowing me to introduce these two outstanding consensus uh, nominees from, from Texas, um, Judge Leon Scheidler and Ernest Gonzalez. Judge Scheidler has been nominated to fill the vacancy in the El Paso Division of the Western District of Texas. Actually, El Paso is closer to the Pacific Ocean than it is to the eastern tip of Texas, which is uh, Beaumont. Uh, give you an idea uh, where it's located. It's uh, way out there. This nominee has a unique and extremely impressive resume that illustrates his longstanding commitment to the rule of law and the people of this great country. In 2015 he served as a uh, he has served since 2015 he served as a US magistrate judge which we heard a lot about here a moment ago. As a magistrate judge he has helped resolve complex discovery matters, held hundreds of hearings and earned the respect of the El Paso bar for his work. As though being a magistrate judge isn't enough responsibility, especially one located on the U.S.-Mexico border, Judge Scheidler has also served in the U.S. Air Force Reserve Judge Advocate Corps since 2010. He currently holds the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Before his current role as a magistrate judge, this nominee spent part of his career in private practice handling complex Uh, federal criminal defense cases, commercial litigation, and international business disputes. While in private practice, Judge Scheidler continued to pick up cases on what is called the Criminal Justice Act panel. As my colleagues know, CJA attorneys ensure that criminal defendants get the representation that they are entitled to under the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Before returning home to Texas, Judge Scheidler also served as a Special Assistant United States Attorney for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Hawaii. Um, And I'd like to note that this nominee has served in not just one but two branches of the United States military. From 1996 to 2004, he served in the U.S. Navy and attained the rank of lieutenant before he was honorably discharged. I know he'll have to field some tough questions today, but I promise I won't ask Judge Scheidlauer whether he prefers the Air Force or the Navy. On a personal note, I enjoyed speaking to the judge about his military service and hearing about the service of his, of his father, who I understand who is watching for home. Judge Scheidloer's father retired as a colonel in the United States Army, my retired as a colonel in the United States Air Force, and Judge Scheidlauer saw a living example of what it means to serve the country with distinction. So, Judge, welcome to you and your family, and congratulations. I also have the privilege of of introducing Ernest Gonzalez, who's been nominated to fill the vacancy in the Del Rio division for the Western District of Texas. Those who are not familiar with uh, Texas geography, El Paso and Del Rio have some heavy dockets because of their proximity uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border, so these are very important. Uh, positions that are being nominated for today. Mr. Gonzalez has spent most of his career in public service as well. He currently serves as a senior advisor to the Department of Justice's criminal division as part of the narcotics and dangerous drugs section. Before that, he served for two decades as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Texas, where he managed one of the largest dockets of any federal prosecutors in the Department of Justice. With over 230 jury trials, Mr. Gonzalez investigated and prosecuted some of the most dangerous cartel members around the world. He became one of the nation's most prolific cartel prosecutors in the process. Mr. Gonzalez previously served for three years as a U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas in Del Rio and six years as the assistant attorney, district attorney in Bear County. Throughout his career, Mr. Gonzalez has prioritized training our law enforcement partners in other countries to establish strong bilateral cooperation on shared law enforcement and national security matters. Um, One of the things I appreciate about Mr. Gonzalez is his uh, commitment to helping train young prosecutors and law enforcement personnel. As we all know, it's harder and harder for lawyers to get trial Uh, practice in courtrooms. It's easier in the criminal dockets than it is in the civil dockets these days, but I think it's absolutely essential that we continue to train the next generation of advocates in our courts, and Mr. Gonzalez has spent quite a bit of time doing that. He graduated from the University of Texas at San Antonio in 1987 and the Thurgood Marshall School of Law in 1993. His temperament, His knowledge of the law and ability to handle a large docket will serve the Del Rio Division of the Western District well. So Mr. Gonzalez, congratulations to you and your family on this nomination, and I look forward to supporting your nomination.
11: Thanks, Senator Cornyn. Next is Senator Lee, here to introduce Judge McKiff-Allen.
15: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a pleasure uh, to be here today, and I'm so grateful to President Biden for his willingness to nominate Judge Anne-Marie McKiff-Allen to the U.S. District Court for the District of Utah. I've known Judge Allen uh, for 30 years. She and I were law school classmates. Uh, judge Allen, even back then, had the perfect temperament for a judge, uh, never drawing attention to herself, always prepared. She had a, a steady, quiet, uh, and always dignified approach, uh, one that inspired uh, respect from all of her classmates. Um, we over time got to know Judge Allen's husband and soon came to realize that they were the power couple. You know, there are a small handful of people in law school who are married to another law student. Uh, But um, the Allens were the power couple uh, of our law school. Uh, Randy was a year ahead of us, and we always went to Randy for sage, wise advice, uh, uh, which he always had. Uh, He's very smart. I told them at the time, it's almost not fair for the two of you to be married to each other. You're going to mess up the gene pool for everybody else's kids. Um, and speaking of that gene pool, uh, we're pleased here to have all three of the Allens' kids and, uh, as well as the spouses of their two married kids. We've got Matthew and his wife Louisa, and we've got Lauren and her husband Will, and we have Eliza, uh, and uh, we're, we're looking for that someone special out there someday. Um, the Allens also apparently have uh, more in common with Judge Rankin than I would have realized because like Judge Rankin, Judge Allen has two children, who have served as Senate pages. Um, Lauren and Eliza were both here as pages. I was frankly kind of offended that Matthew never expressed interest, but we'll take that up for a different day. In any event, the Allens are uh, are here in full support. I've asked them to serve in the same role as Taylor Swift in the cheering section of a Chiefs game. Um, uh, That'll be sure to happen. Judge Allen brings a wealth of experience and background to this as a practicing lawyer. Uh, as someone who's served in the public and private sector, uh, as someone who's been the general counsel of Southern U- Utah University, uh, who's handled clients and matters in a wide range of civil, uh, a- of civil, criminal, uh, and and family court matters, and as someone who brings a wealth of experience as a judge over the last few years, uh, uh, she is uh, very well suited for this position and. Uh, if confirmed, uh, we'll be filling a, a, a role that will be stationed in southern Utah, our first full-time post uh, for that position uh, from the outset, being based in St. George, Utah. So um, uh, it's without hesitation and with great pleasure that I introduce Judge emory McKiff-Allen to this committee. Thank you.
11: Thank you, Senator Lee. Uh, Senator Romney was unable to join us in person today, but he asked that a statement of introduction and support for Judge McKiff-Allen be entered into the record, which will happen without objection. We have one other nominee I'd like to personally introduce. Today, we'll hear from Judge Robin Merriweather, nominated to the US Court of Federal Claims. Judge Merriweather received her undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan and her JD from Yale Law School. After graduating law school, she clerked for then Judge Merrick Garland on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. Judge Merriweather then entered private practice at Jenner and Block here in DC focusing on complex lit- civil litigation and matters involving constitutional, statutory, and regulatory, regulatory uh, uh, c- c- claims.
0: Coming up, Netflix announces good news. The company added more than what, 13 million subscribers for the fourth quarter, beating expectations.
1: And in France, farmers blocking roads across the country and threatening to reach Paris will bring you their demands when we return.
0: Welcome back. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun is meeting with senators on Capitol Hill this week to address concerns about the grounding of the 737 MAX 9.
1: This, as United Airlines, a longtime Boeing customer, is raising questions over billions of dollars of orders for MAX
0: 10 jets. The meetings come after an incident involving an Alaska Airlines jet. A plug replacing an unused exit door tore off, forcing an emergency landing.
1: Senators Ted Cruz and Mark Warner are among those meeting Calhoun.
0: The FAA grounded 171 MAX 9 planes, prompting worries about delays and regulatory issues for the larger MAX 10.
1: United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby said they would build a new fleet plan that does not include that model.
0: And Joining us now is NTD business host Don Mott to discuss earnings.
1: Netflix shares are soaring after seeing blowout subscriber growth in the fourth quarter. Don, it seems like Netflix did well in the past few months.
16: Yeah, David, uh, it seems like it did do pretty well. Uh, It blew past estimates when it comes to subscriber growth Um, in the fourth quarter. The company reported it added 13.1 million subscribers. Uh, ...in the quarter ending in December. And this is the largest uh, ever fourth quarter subscriber growth in its history. So that's pretty big. This brings the total number of subscribers up to 260 million for the streaming platform. And revenue as well It rose to $8.8 billion for the quarter and uh, the the giant uh, said that it expects healthy double-digit revenue growth for the full year as well in 2024 this year so you know what led to the gains the company uh, credited gains uh, to the strength of uh, its intellectual property or the popularity of its shows uh, chief financial officer spencer newman said that netflix plans to increase spending Uh, on more content actually so he anticipates the streamer would uh, invest as much as 17 billion dollars this year Um, and in light of Netflix's earnings uh, report some analysts believe that Netflix may actually uh, be the clear winner now in terms of the streaming wars between different streaming platforms and Netflix is also ramping up its bets on live programming Uh, as we've seen it's betting big on uh, the deal with WWE's Raw, which is valued at uh, $5 billion, uh, which will give, its right, give rights to uh, it to have the, um, the, the live events on its uh, platform starting in 2025.
0: Right. So how are investors reacting to all this?
16: Yeah, so investors seem to be cheering because Netflix stock uh, jumped double digits uh, in this morning's trading. The streaming platform shares were trading at more than two-year highs. And the company was set to increase its market value by tens of billion dollars, that is, if the gains hold. Um, So here's some factors that may have contributed to the stellar subscriber growth. In the past year, uh, the company implemented several initiatives aimed at uh, just that. That's including uh, a password-sharing crackdown that pushed uh, password uh, quote-unquote borrowers uh, to create their own subscriptions, and Netflix declared its password-sharing crackdown actually a success. So it seems that's doing well uh, on that front. It also introduced an advertising-supported subscription tier for $6.99, which is a lot cheaper than the regular tier and that's gaining a bit of subscribers. Netflix president of advertising said Netflix ad tier hit more than 23 million monthly uh, memberships and Netflix finished 2023 with 12% revenue growth up from 6% in the previous year 2022. So things are looking pretty good.
0: Yeah, pretty interesting. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. And next up, Turkey has voted to be to allow Sweden to join NATO. After 20 months of delays, the biggest remaining hurdle to expanding the Western military alliance has now been cleared.
1: But why did it take so long? And what happens next? Let's dive in.
12: Sweden and Finland asked to join NATO in 2022 following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Turkey surprised some members by raising objections. It said the two countries protected groups that Ankara deems terrorists. In April of last year, it endorsed Finland's membership. But along with Hungary, kept Sweden waiting. Ankara had urged Stockholm to toughen its stance on local members of the Kurdistan Workers Party, which the European Union and United States also deem a terrorist group. In response, Sweden introduced a new anti-terrorism bill that makes being a member of a terrorist organization illegal. In addition, Sweden, Finland, Canada and the Netherlands also took steps to relax Turkey arms export policies. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan has linked Sweden's ratification to U.S. approval of sales of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey, a sale the White House backs. Now that Parliament has ratified the move, Erdogan is expected to sign it into law within days. That would leave Hungary as the only NATO member state which hasn't approved Sweden's accession. It had pledged it wouldn't be the last ally to ratify, but its parliament is in recess until around mid-February. Prime Minister Viktor Orban said on Tuesday he has invited Sweden's leader to visit and negotiate. Sweden's membership bid marked a historic shift away from decades of military neutrality and joining the bloc will enhance NATO defenses in the Baltic Sea region. Ankara's delays, while enabling it to extract some concessions, also frustrated some of its Western allies.
0: Staying in Europe, we have some short headlines from France, Germany, and other countries. A Russian military plane today crashing and reportedly killing 74 people. Russia is accusing Ukraine of shooting the plane down. According to the Kremlin, the plane was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war who all died in the crash. They were allegedly being transported for a prisoner swap.
1: But Ukraine says it's still investigating the incident and cautioned against spreading unverified information. The cause of the crash is still unclear at this time.
0: Russia is in the process of passing a law that'll punish certain crimes by confiscating property. Those crimes include spreading what it calls false information about Russia's army. Lawmakers have passed the first stage of this bill.
1: It would allow the state to seize the property of Russians who've left the country and have criticized the war in Ukraine, but who still make money from renting out from their houses or apartments in Russia. The measure will also apply to those found guilty of discrediting the armed forces or calling for sanctions against Moscow.
0: French farmers today gearing up for another day of road blockades. They're demanding better working and living conditions. The farmers say too many regulations are costly to follow and are preventing them from earning a decent income.
1: The the protests have blocked key transportation networks in southern France this week. The country's biggest farming union today said road blockades could even target Paris.
7: This
5: is a general issue. We have too many regulations. We lack water. Whether to water our value-added crops, to be able to transmit and create added value on the farm, to be able to care for our animals and make them drink. We are lacking a lot of things. We have too many regulations.
0: In neighboring Germany, train drivers are striking again. The six-day strike started today and is set to end next week.
1: Train drivers are still demanding better pay and working hours. They held a three-day strike earlier this month and two warning strikes last year, which lasted up to 24 hours.
0: The latest strike is sure to create headaches for consumers as it's unclear if and when negotiations will happen again.
8: A frustrated. I'm a little frustrated because trains, which were announced as running this morning as part of the emergency schedule in the end, never arrived. So I have to wait for an hour here in Cologne.
0: If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today.
1: I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers.
0: Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump celebrated his New Hampshire victory with some Republican allies. Hear what they had to say about his big win.
1: Maine's Secretary of State wants former President Trump off the ballot, but but a court decision put her decision on hold. Find out what happens next.
0: Louisiana's Congressional map could cost Republicans a seat in Congress. We bring you why the state's governor still signed it this week.
1: In the wake of a harrowing Alaska Airlines jet incident involving a torn-off door, senators want answers and are meeting with Boeing's CEO this week.
0: The European Union drawing up plans to protect its economic security with an eye on China.
1: A Labrador Retriever, Super Bowl Champion Eli Manning, and an organization to assist the blind. Find out how they all fit together after the break.
2: This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stefania Cox and Chris Beers.
1: I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers.
0: To begin the show, former President Trump wins the New Hampshire Republican primary, defeating candidate Nikki Haley. And on the Democratic side, President Biden wins the Granite State.
1: Trump won dub- by double digits. He's now secured by 12 delegates in the state compared to Haley's nine. Let's look at the results. GOP frontrunner Trump claiming about 54% of the vote with over 168,000 votes.
0: Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has about 43% of the vote, totaling just over 134,000 votes. 95% of the votes have now been counted. Continuing with Trump's New Hampshire victory, we take a look at some exit polls.
1: Entity's Daniel Monahan has a more detailed breakdown of the voters and what's on their minds.
4: Voters were less staunchly conservative and less closely tied to the Republican Party than those in last week's Iowa caucuses, according to a CNN exit poll. Voters who were registered as Republicans broke heavily for Trump, with roughly three-quarters favoring him. Voters registered as undeclared favored Haley, with about two-thirds backing her. For educational background, about two-thirds of voters without college degrees backed Trump while roughly six in 10 college graduates supported Haley. Voters largely cited the economy or immigration as their top issue in the election, with fewer citing abortion or foreign policy as their top concern. CBS News's exit polling shows signs of division among Republicans. Eight in 10 Trump voters would be dissatisfied if Haley were to win the nomination, and even more Haley voters would be dissatisfied if Trump becomes the nominee. Trump has strong support among his voters. 80% strongly favor him. 16% like Trump with reservations. Haley's support was more watered down. 29% strongly favor her. 31% like her with reservations. And 39% dislike the other candidates. Nevada, South Carolina, and Michigan will all hold primaries in February. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: The New Hampshire Republican primary set a record for the most votes ever cast in the contest. As of 8 p.m. Eastern Time this morning, CNN had tallied about 301,000 votes. That surpasses the nearly 288,000 ballots cast in the 2016 contest.
1: Previously, the most ballots ever cast in a New Hampshire presidential primary was roughly 300,000 in the 2020 Democratic contest. CNN estimates more than 320,000 votes will be cast this year in the Granite State's GOP primary.
0: And high-profile supporters of Trump were in New Hampshire last night to celebrate his victory. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Senate candidate Carrie Lake were among those in attendance.
7: The Republican Party completely rejected her.
8: She's going into a state that probably loves him much one day like her. And he's going to wipe her out in New South Carolina.
13: Uh, Nikki Haley has got to do some soul searching tonight. She's got to, as they say, read the room on and recognize
9: that this is no longer the party the among and this is no longer the party of the multinational corporation billionaire who thinks they can buy our country. We, reason people, stood up and
0: knew. Republican Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Byron Donalds of Florida also attended.
1: Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy was on site as well.
0: Trump picked up a new endorsement following his New Hampshire victory. Senator John Cornyn has declared his support for the former president.
1: Cornyn wrote on X that Republicans need to unite around a single candidate. He said it's clear that President Trump is Republican voters' choice.
0: The senator highlighted concerns about Biden's policies, mentioning the border crisis and high inflation, as well as foreign policies that he believes have made the world more perilous.
1: Cornyn's endorsement indicates growing support within Senate GOP leadership for Trump.
0: And here to discuss the presidential primaries live is chief pollster of the Trafalgar Group, Robert Cahaley. Robert, Trump secured a decisive victory over Nikki Haley, of course, though perhaps less than expected. What factors, in your view, contributed to this outcome, especially considering the role of independent voters?
5: Oh, absolutely. That's... What you had happen is it's a Republican primary, but 53% of the people who voted in the Republican primary were not self-identified Republicans. Uh, among Republicans, Trump won 70% of the vote. And so it, it really is you know hard to describe to people outside of uh, New Hampshire that a bunch of people who aren't Republicans could affect the Republican primary to that degree, but they certainly did.
0: Right. Now, Trump is the first non-incumbent since 1976 to win both Iowa and New Hampshire. How do you assess the momentum momentum behind his campaign?
14: Well,
5: that is certainly a great deal of momentum, and he's headed to South Carolina, which is the one perfect indicator. No one has ever lost South Carolina and gone on to be president in either party. So it's a must-win. It's always been a must-win. Uh, And he is in great position coming into South Carolina. He has literally the entire statewide elected official entourage from the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. I mean, the superintendent of agriculture. He's got everybody. And then both U.S. senators and a majority of the congressmen and just hundreds of legislative and smaller level endorsements. When DeSantis got out, Um, Most of his people folded into Trump's organization. And so he comes in it very strong. And uh, like, you know, Trey Gowdy was quoted last night saying people in South Carolina like Nikki Haley and love Tim Scott, but neither one of them could beat Donald Trump in South Carolina.
0: And Robert, how do you think donors will be viewing Nikki Haley's 11-point loss to Trump last night? The state has what was widely considered her best and perhaps only shot at winning.
5: That's exactly right. I mean, DeSantis, you know, did the best he could do and came in second in the state he was supposed to do his best work in. Haley has now maxed out what she can do. And so, you know, she's going to have some donors that are just all in. I mean, there are certainly people behind her who actually are not necessarily for her, but trying to kind of confuse the Republican electorate. Because what we do know from polling is that if somehow she were to be the Republican nominee, that Kennedy would get double digits. The Trump coalition, especially the people that he has kind of brought into the party, will not vote for her. So she is a one-way ticket to splitting the Republican party and losing. And the Democrats know that. And so she's kind of like everybody else that's a politician has gotten out of the race. And she kind of reminds me of Rick Santorum just hanging on so she can be last a few years back.
0: And yet she's vowing to stay in the race. She's pulling miles behind Trump in her home state, even in South Carolina. So what states, if any, do you think she still has a shot at winning?
5: I really can't think of anything because the momentum that will come after South Carolina and going into the Deep South and and the Super Tuesday states, uh, so many of them, is just going to be so strong, it's going to be overwhelming, and the delegate counts are going to stout, start to rack up. South Carolina has winner-take-all, but it's not winner-take-all win the whole state. Half the delegates are awarded for those who win the state, and then each congressional district awards three delegates for who wins the congressional district. Uh, in 2016, Trump had a sweep. Uh, But it it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes there's an odd congressional district. And Trump is... He will undoubtedly leave with a big lead in delegates from South Carolina and Super Tuesday.
0: Now, just looking more directly at Trump, he's largely considered to be the inevitable Republican nominee. And last night's win has consolidated that perception. But looking ahead to the general election, how is Trump polling against President Biden in your polls? What we
5: see from Trump is that he is cutting into the Democrat coalition. He's doubling the percentage of the African-American vote he got in uh, 2020. He's doubling the percentage of Hispanics he got, and he's doubling the percentage of young people. So there's a lot of talk about swing voters and suburban mobs, but frankly, if he undercuts all those voters from Biden, it doesn't matter what the swing voters and suburban mobs do, because when you erode that much of the Democrat coalition, there's not much left.
0: All right, Robert so Kahaley, you gonna have
5: also a lot of third-party candidates. Uh, you got no labels that are on the ballot, I believe in 11 states. Right. Cornell West is gonna get a significant amount of black vote All in right. some of the uh, higher minority uh, states. And so it's gonna be a much more jumbled contest, okay. much more like 2016 than it was 2020. We'll
0: have to keep an eye on that. Thank you so much, Robert Cahaley, chief pollster of the Trafalgar Group.
5: Thank you.
1: Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows is challenging a court order that put a hold on her decision to disqualify Trump in the upcoming primary election in her state. Bellows argues that this delay undermines her ability to organize a fair election on March 5th.
0: Bellows found Trump ineligible in December based on the 14th Amendment, but a court paused his removal from the ballot pending an appeal. The Supreme Court is set to hear the case on February 8th.
1: Bellows says a decision to close the March 5th primary would cause complications, especially if overseas and early ballots have already been distributed with Trump's name on them.
0: And former President Trump's gag order in another case remains in place. A D.C. federal appeals court turned down Trump's request to reevaluate what he can say about his 2020 election case.
1: The order was originally put in place by Judge Tanya Chutkin last year in the criminal case led by Special Counsel Jack Smith.
0: The court refused to rehear arguments about whether Trump can be prohibited from talking about court staff and witnesses.
1: No statements or dissents were made by the justices. This means Trump has one last chance to challenge the gag order if he chooses to do so with the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: Some of President Biden's top White House advisors will soon soon shift their roles to his campaign. The move comes as the Biden administration watches former President Trump's quick move to the Republican nomination. According to a senior Biden advisor, Jen O'Malley-Dillon, who who was Biden's 2020 campaign manager, will transition to become campaign chair. Her current role is the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Senior advisor Mike Donnellan will also move over to the campaign as its chief strategist. He will focus on the campaign's messaging and paid media strategies. The shift in titles is set to take place in the coming weeks. Biden's current campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, will remain in her role. The first Democratic primary cycle gets underway February 3rd. Louisiana's governor signing a bill to create a new congressional map. The map establishes a second majority black district. It could cost Republicans a seat in Congress, threatening their slim House majority. The Republican governor signed the map into law on Monday. A federal court order required the state to, re- to draw the new map in compliance with the federal voting rights act. Otherwise, courts would have redrawn the boundaries at trial. This came after Democrats and civil rights groups sued over the earlier map. They alleged that it discriminated against black voters. That's because the map had one majority black district out of six. That's despite the fact that black residents made up roughly a third of the state's population. Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana, whose district is affected by the new map, says he expects further legal challenges.
1: Brewing tensions within the GOP in Arizona. Senate candidate Carrie Lake is calling for the state's Republican Party chair Jeff DeWitt to resign. This, after an audio recording surfaced, appearing to show DeWitt presenting Lake with an offer of money to leave the politics. The recording is reportedly from last March and published by the Daily Mail. In the recording, DeWitt is heard suggesting that powerful figures want Lake to stay out of the Senate race for two years. Lake reacted in an interview on NBC News last night. She said, quote, he's got to resign. We can't have somebody who's corrupt and compromised running the Republican party. The Senate candidate rejected the offer. She also expressed frustration that unnamed figures would attempt to buy her out rather than work with her.
0: Coming up, the Pentagon warns that money for Ukraine has run out as a top Senate negotiator says there will be no vote on aid this week. More on the push for a bipartisan deal.
1: A wrong turn into a rural driveway turned deadly last year. And now the verdict is in for the shooter. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today.
0: Welcome back. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun is meeting with senators on Capitol Hill this week to address concerns about the grounding of the 737 MAX 9.
1: This, as United Airlines, a longtime Boeing customer, is raising questions over billions of dollars in orders for MAX 10 jets.
0: Calhoun said the plane maker will only support the operation of its airplanes if it's 100% confident in their safety.
2: We believe in our airplanes. We feel that safe airplanes, our people do. We have confidence in the safety of our airplanes, and that's what all of this is about, that we fully understand the gravity.
0: The meetings come after an incident involving an Alaska Airlines jet. A plug replacing an unused exit door tore off, forcing an emergency landing.
1: Senators Ted Cruz and Mark Warner are among those meeting Calhoun.
0: The FAA grounded 171 MAX 9 planes prompting worries about delays and regulatory issues for the larger MAX 10.
1: United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby said they would build a new fleet plan that does not include that model.
0: Senate leaders say negotiators are closer to a deal on Ukraine and the border and that will be able to win wide bipartisan support and with a good enough margin to have the House follow suit.
1: Senators say negotiations have turned to funding border policy changes. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the holdup.
7: Now this work is not easy. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said negotiators have reached a pivotal stretch on a deal that could gain enough GOP votes to replenish aid for Ukraine. The Democratic leader criticized MAGA Republicans for the holdup. Many of these MAGA Republicans are taking their cues from Donald Trump directly. Lead GOP negotiator Senator James Lankford said Tuesday there certainly will not be a vote this week. Lankford says many issues still need to be worked out, but is very hopeful the text will be out sometime this week. President Biden is requesting $110 billion from Congress. The measure includes military aid for Israel and Ukraine, support and deterrence in the Asian Pacific, and overhauls to immigration. A core group of negotiators has been working for nearly two months on changes to border and immigration policy. Top Democratic negotiator Senator Chris Murphy says time for Ukraine is running out. Reports suggest that on some days, Ukraine is firing one-quarter to one-half the number of rounds that the Russian military is. That is a recipe for disaster. Murphy says there's no reason to wait weeks to get the bill on the floor. He wants to see a bipartisan effort over the next few days. We have been at these negotiations for four months. We are at the finish line. Meanwhile, the U.S. came empty-handed for the first time as host of a 50-nation monthly meeting made up of allies that support Ukraine. The group was established by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in 2022. Austin urged the group to dig deep, to provide Ukraine with more air defense systems and interceptors until Congress approves more aid. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
0: And the dispute between Texas and the Biden administration continues. Homeland Security now demanding access to a riverfront park in Eagle Pass.
1: This after a recent Supreme Court ruling, which Texas appears to be ignoring.
0: Homeland Security sent a letter to Texas on Tuesday demanding unrestricted access to Shelby Park. The letter also asks Texas to clarify which parts of the park are accessible and which aren't.
1: Texas previously said it took control over the border park because Homeland Security wasn't enforcing immigration law. State authorities are now arresting illegal immigrants and charging them with criminal trespass.
0: On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government is allowed to remove razor wire put in place by Texas to deter migrants. Homeland Security also referred to this ruling in its Tuesday letter. And Texas so far has ignored that Supreme Court ruling. The state hasn't made any moves to take down existing fencing and it's also pressing ahead with previously scheduled wire installation.
1: On Tuesday, Texas officials said that's to make sure more illegal immigrants don't enter the country. They say more migrants will arrive once word gets out that the fencing is being taken down.
0: Texas's governor, attorney general and other high-ranking officials are criticizing are all criticized the Supreme Court ruling. They say they'll continue trying to stop illegal immigration.
1: The Biden administration meanwhile says Border Patrol needs unrestricted access to all areas in cases of emergencies. That's for example to provide first aid to law enforcement or migrants crossing the river. Convicted of murder for shooting at a car that took a wrong turn, a man in upstate New York last year opened fire on an SUV when the driver mistakenly turned onto his driveway. A young woman was killed.
15: Alright, so as to the first count, murder in the second degree,
7: how does the jury find the defendant, Kevin Monahan, guilty or not guilty?
0: The jury deliberated for less than an hour before finding Kevin Monahan guilty for shooting 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis. The murder conviction carries a maximum sentence of 25 years to life.
1: Gillis and a group of friends were looking for a house party when they mistakenly turned into Monahan's driveway in a rural town north of Albany.
0: They began leaving once they realized their mistake, but Monahan came out to his porch and fired twice from his shotgun.
1: The prosecution said Monaghan was motivated by irrational rage toward trespassers. Monahan said the first shot was a warning, the second an accident after tripping. The California man indicted in two shootings last year in Half Moon Bay was arraigned in court yesterday. Chun Li Zhao faces seven counts of first-degree murder, murder and a single count of attempted murder. According to San Mateo officials, Zhao fatally shot four people at a mushroom farm before killing three others at another farm. He didn't enter a plea yesterday, which came exactly one year after the incident. Another court date is scheduled for February 29th, and Zhao is expected to enter a plea then. Zhao was charged in the case last year, but several hearings were delayed.
0: And An Oregon jury yesterday ordered electric power company Pacific Corp to pay more than $60 million to nine homeowners. The properties of the homeowners were damaged by wildfires that devastated the state in 2020. Jurors awarded the homeowners over $6 million for property damage and over $55 million for things like emotional distress, pain and suffering. The trial was the first of at least two scheduled this year to serve as test cases to determine how much Pacificor owes Oregon residents. The company, owned by billionaire Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, could face billions in liability to compensate approximately 5,000 homeowners and business owners. A Pacificor spokesperson said in a statement that the company intends to appeal the verdict, adding that the company has settled separate claims related to the fires and will continue to settle other reasonable claims as well.
1: Federal transportation officials have approved billions of dollars in private bonds for a high-speed train connecting Las Vegas to Southern California. The $2.5 billion in private bonds are in addition to $3 billion in federal funding approved by the Biden administration last month.
0: Work on the 218-mile Brightline high-speed rail is expected to begin in Las Vegas this summer. The company announced last week that it began field investigation work in Nevada in advance of breaking ground on the $12 billion project.
1: Brightline West is expected to bring jobs to thousands of workers, with the goal to be finished by summer 2028, when the Olympics come to L.A.
0: The tallest skyscraper in the U.S. might be coming to Oklahoma City. Madison Capital and architecture firm AO had planned to build the second tallest skyscraper in the country there, but now they've redesigned it to be reach even higher. They're seeking permission from city government to increase the height of what's being called Legends Tower to 1,907 feet. The new height refers to 1907, the year Oklahoma became a state.
1: The developers say if approved, it will beat out New York's One World Trade Center to become the tallest building in the U.S., and it will be one of the tallest buildings in the world.
0: The project spans about five million square feet and includes three much smaller towers. It will be part of the boardwalk at Bricktown Development. Coming up, a deadly gas explosion in the middle of the night. The dramatic blast in Mongolia took 600 firefighters to contain and prevent further deaths. See more of that footage.
1: The European Union drawing up plans to protect its economic security with an eye on China. What steps will they take? That and more after the break.
0: At least six people were killed in Mongolia following a large gas explosion that happened overnight in Mongolia's capital city. Eyewitness videos show the blast and then a large blaze. The fire quickly engulfed several nearby buildings and sent sparks and debris flying through homes.
1: A truck carrying 60 tons of liquefied natural gas crashed into a small car, causing an immediate explosion. Then a second blast ripped off a part of the truck with great force.
0: The explosion was in a mainly residential area. The death toll includes at least three firefighters. At least 11 people were injured.
1: The fire was eventually extinguished with the work of more than 600 firefighters and 100 vehicles.
0: And now we have some short headlines from China. The European Union is taking steps to safeguard its technology from global rivals. It's set to announce today some measures aimed at protecting its economic security. Plans include tighter rules on the type of foreign investment that can come in and tighter export controls of sensitive technology such as semiconductors.
1: The EU did not name any country, but the move comes at a time when the bloc is de-risking itself from China, one of its biggest trading partners. Critics warned that the new measures could be hard to enforce because individual EU member states have their own foreign policy.
0: Beijing moving to bolster its reeling economy. China's central bank said it would allow banks to free up more cash for lending by cutting the amount of cash that banks must hold as reserves.
1: It's the biggest bank rush cut in three years. Officials say the move would free up over $130 billion to the market.
0: China's economy has been on a downward spiral. Two benchmark indexes, the CSI and the Hang Seng, plunged to historic lows Monday. Distress in the housing market, local government debt risks, and weakening global demand hampered pandemic recovery. More Germany firms have left China or considering doing so. That's according to a survey by the German Chamber of Commerce in China.
1: The organization polled over 500 German firms in China and found the number of firms selling off their businesses or weighing the move have more than doubled in the past four years.
0: The survey highlights the challenges faced by these firms, such as increased competition from local Chinese companies, unequal market access, economic headwinds, and geopolitical risks. About half of the companies surveyed have taken steps to de-risk from China, including building alternative supply chains. China is Germany's biggest trading partner.
1: A million-dollar lawsuit, all because of a small, fashion shoulder bag. Here's how China-linked retailer Sheen got involved. Japanese retailer Uniqlo is suing Sheen for copyright violations, targeting one of its most popular products, a canvas bag, called the Mary Poppins bag. It's sold for about $20 to customers around the globe.
0: A product that appears visually similar to Uniqlo's bag has appeared on fast fashion giant Sheen's website. Uniqlo filed the lawsuit in Tokyo less than a month ago saying the company has endured over a million dollars in losses because of the copyright theft and demanding Sheen pay the same amount in damages.
1: A trial is kicking off in Boston tied to a music student from China studying at Berkeley. That's over charges that he allegedly threatened to chop off an activist's hands, all because of she posted flyers supporting democracy for China on campus. The activist posted a photo of the flyer on Instagram. Wu allegedly demanded that she take down the flyers and said he reported her to authorities back in China.
0: An assistant US attorney called it a serious threat as Beijing has been upping its pressure to silence critics abroad. Human rights groups have also highlighted Beijing's efforts to monitor Chinese students overseas. They also note the threat that poses to academic freedom.
1: Wu was arrested last December. He pleaded not guilty. Wu's attorney said his comments were just
0: part of an immature online dispute between two young people. If convicted, he faces up to 10 years in prison and an up to $500,000 fine. And in more China news, a heated confrontation racking up 6 million views.
1: A group of Chinese nationals stopped a British pianist from live-streaming his performance in London and is threatening legal action. More, more. details coming tonight at 9.30 on Entity's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer.
0: And in Europe, we have some short headlines from France, Germany and other countries. A Russian military plane today crashing and reportedly killing 74 people. Russia is accusing Ukraine of shooting the plane down. According to the Kremlin, the plane was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war who all died in the crash. They were allegedly being transported for a prisoner swap.
1: But Ukraine says it's still investigating the incident and cautioned against spreading unverified information. The cause of the crash is still unclear at this time.
0: Russia is in the process of passing a law that will punish certain crimes by confiscating property. Those crimes include spreading what it calls false information about Russia's army. Lawmakers have passed the first stage of this bill.
1: It would allow the state to seize the property of Russians who have left the country and have criticized the war in Ukraine. But who still make money from renting out their houses or apartments in Russia? The measure will also apply to those found guilty of discrediting the armed forces or calling for sanctions against Moscow.
0: And French farmers today gearing up for another day of road blockades. They're demanding better working and living conditions. The farmers say too many regulations are costly to follow and are preventing them from earning a decent income.
1: The protests have blocked key transportation networks in southern France this week. The country's biggest farming union today said road blockades could even target Paris.
5: This is a general issue. We have too many regulations. We lack water, whether to water our value-added crops, to be able to transmit and create added value on the farm, to be able to care for our animals and make them drink. We are lacking a lot of things. We have too many regulations.
0: And in neighboring Germany, train drivers are striking again. The six-day strike started today
1: and it's set to end next week. Train drivers are still demanding better pay and working hours. They held a three-day strike earlier this month and two warning strikes last year, which lasted up to 24 hours.
0: This latest strike is sure to create headaches for con- commuters as it's unclear if and when the negotiations will happen again.
8: A I'm a little frustrated because trains, which were announced as running this morning as part of the emergency schedule in the end, never arrived. So, I have to wait for an hour here in Cologne.
0: I'm turning now to Central America. Costa Rica is wrestling with a surge in violence so striking that its government is borrowing a page from nearby El Salvador.
1: How will the country's tough on crime policies become a blueprint for Costa Rica? Let's take a look.
6: Costa Rica is facing a surge in violence in the once tranquil tourist-friendly country. Its homicide rate has soared 40 percent in the last year alone, a jump so striking the government is taking a page from nearby El Salvador, which suspended constitutional rights as part of a sweeping crackdown to tackle its crime problem.
14: Extraordinary
7: times may require extraordinary measures, with regard to even the tone of our criminal law, which is a law of very strong constitutional guarantees. But at this moment, the country needs to reflect on whether this is in the general welfare of the population.
6: Some of the president's ideas include increasing jail sentences for minors to the adult maximum of 50 years, allowing extraditions, and extending the use of preventative detention, making it easier to hold suspects with limited evidence. Costa Rica's newfound openness to such measures underlines the regional popularity of Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele's draconian tactics to take on the expansion of drug cartel activity. His suspension of constitutional rights, which among other things allows police to indefinitely detain suspected gang members without the right to a lawyer, has elicited strong condemnation by human rights campaigners. Adopting similar tactics would be a radical shift for Costa Rica, where many in Congress cleave to a more caring approach to crime prevention. But even among those ranks, whispers of support for tougher policies are growing. Bukele was voted Costa Ricans' favorite political leader in an October survey by research firm Indice. Chavez has taken note, vowing to tackle what he calls his country's soft laws, and dubbed El Salvador a reference point in combating crime. Analysts say Costa Rica's spike in homicides has been driven by gang warfare among cocaine traffickers and growing social discontent since the COVID pandemic.
0: Coming up, two Venezuelan baseball players sign major contracts. Some say they're the best prospects to come out of the country in years.
1: And locals in a Central Asian country take advantage of freezing temperatures. A popular winter sport brings young people together. We'll return with more after the break.
0: Some sports news. LeBron James and Steph Curry headline Team USA's player pool for the 2024 Olympics.
1: The 12-member basketball team will be selected from 41 players. The NBA's three-point leader Steph Curry has never represented the U.S. at the Olympics before. Four-time NBA champion LeBron James last played for Team USA in 2012 when they won gold.
0: The U.S. won its fourth consecutive Olympic title at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. The national team will be led by head coach Steve Kerr, who also guides the NBA's Golden State Warriors. And a yellow Labrador retriever named 10 after Super Bowl champion Eli Manning's jersey number found a new home yesterday. It's part of a New York City event held by Guiding Eyes for the Blind, a nonprofit that trains guide dogs to help the visually impaired. Manning personally handed over the canine and his leash to his new handler, the CEO and president of the nonprofit. The New York Giants officially retired Manning's number 10 jersey in 2021.
15: I got introduced to introduce Guiding Eyes through a uh, family friend, uh, Pat Brown, um, who uh, was blind. He lived in New Orleans uh, and was great friends with my, with my, my dad, his son, uh, Pat Brown the third, was a great friend of mine. So I saw firsthand uh, Mr. Brown and the impact uh, a guide dog made in his
8: life. And...
0: Guiding Eyes for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that breeds, trains, and raises dogs for people with vision loss. In 2023, the organization matched 150 guide dogs to people with vision loss.
1: The organization appointed Manning to its board of directors in 2020.
0: And two Venezuelans have signed contracts to play Major League Baseball in the U.S.
1: Some say the athletes are the best prospects to come out of the South American country in years.
0: NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details.
8: Jose Perdomo and Yovani Rodriguez are both just 17 years old. Perdomo will play for the Atlanta Braves, while Rodriguez will step up to the plate for the New York Mets.
7: When I was welcomed to the Atlanta Braves, I cried. I was so excited. I was very satisfied when they told me the salary. I worked so hard for that. I thank God for always allowing me to do what I love the most. I thank my family, my mom, and my dad. Baseball is popular
8: in Venezuela, for many, the sport is considered a ticket out of poverty.
7: I always had the support of my family and my uncle. When I received the news that we had closed the offer with the New York Mets, it was very nice because my grandmother didn't know. My mother knew, but my grandmother didn't. I felt so much emotion when I called my grandmother. I had made it.
8: Perdomo received a $5 million signing bonus with the Braves. Rodriguez signed for a $2.8 million bonus with the Mets. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
1: Locals in northeastern Kyrgyzstan are taking advantage of freezing temperatures to play popular winter sports. NT's Andrew Thomas has more on what's happening out on the ice.
8: Once the local lake in Delon village gets thick enough, dozens of young men and women lace up their skates. Time to play some hockey.
16: These are my personal skates. I bought them myself. Equipment for one player will cost approximately 50,000 soms or around $600. The gear is expensive, imported. Sometimes it's brought to us as an aid in different ways.
8: A local resident and mother of five says all of her children love hockey, but it's not her favorite sport.
0: When
3: they go out to play, I'm always worried, because I think ice hockey is one of the hardest sports. DUE TO THE FACT THAT MANY CHILDREN DO NOT HAVE SPECIALIZED GEAR, OF COURSE I'M WORRIED ABOUT THEM, ABOUT A PUCK HITTING THEM IN THE FACE OR THEM GETTING SERIOUS
0: INJURIES.
8: COACH ADIL ISAKOV USED TO PLAY FOR THE DISTRICT ICE HOCKEY TEAM DURING THE SOVIET ERA.
16: AT THE MOMENT, WE ONLY PLAY IN OUR VILLAGE, BUT WHEN WE DO, WE HAVE THREE OR FOUR TEAMS FROM OUR VILLAGE ALONE. THE GUYS COME WHENEVER THEY CAN.
8: Now Isakov trains local kids. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: And in health news, could a walk help prevent diabetes? Yes, as it turns out. And the faster the pace, the better.
1: Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
17: Doctors have long touted the benefits of walking for preventing diabetes, but the fresh focus on intensity now proves that both duration and speed play an important role. Researchers analyzed 10 previous studies conducted between 1990 and 2022. These studies linked walking pace to the development of type 2 diabetes in adults. The final review was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. They discovered that faster walking speeds correlated with a lower risk of developing diabetes. Researchers believe that speed is a factor in the prevention of type 2 diabetes. This is because walking speed is an indicator of overall health status. Additionally, brisker walking paces are linked to superior cardiorespiratory fitness. Cardiorespiratory fitness pertains to the capacity of the circulatory and respiratory systems to deliver oxygen to the muscles. The researchers also tied walking speed to muscle strength. They noted that muscle loss can prompt inflammation and increase one's diabetes risk. Moreover, brisk walking may decrease body weight, waist size, and body fat percentage all of which can boost insulin sensitivity and ensure the body can deal with blood sugar effectively. The findings support existing exercise guidelines for diabetes prevention and care. The Department of Health and Human Services recommends 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate activity. This includes brisk walks or vigorous jogging or a combination. According to the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive and Kidney Diseases suggests another way to minimize the onset of diabetes. Losing five to seven percent of body weight can also reduce one's risk.
0: A proposed ban on menthol cigarettes isn't making any progress. The American Lung Association is accusing the Biden administration of dragging its feet. In the association's annual State of Tobacco Control report out today, It says without the menthol ban, there would be more death and disease caused by smoking. It notes that black smokers are more likely to smoke menthols. In October, the FDA sent the proposed rules to the White House for review, but the White House Office of Management and Budget has yet to sign off on it. A timetable released last month indicated the final menthol rule would be decided in March.
1: The Lung Association report says the White House is prioritizing politics and tobacco industry profits over public health.
0: Menthol cigarettes make it both easier to start smoking and harder to quit by reducing the harshness of the smoke and cooling the throat.
1: It's a question that has dogged researchers for a very long time. Why do dogs wag their tails? Is it because they are happy, as some people suggest, or is it something else? Animal researchers in Europe have released new findings that propose a different theory. The researchers studied wolves and dogs and found historically wolves hardly ever wag their tails. But when dogs do, people react in a positive way. So over thousands of years, people were likely attracted to dogs that wag their tails and wanted to keep that trait when breeding took place.
0: Fascinating. The scientists say they want to do more research on their findings.
1: The study appears in Biology Letters Journal.
0: That's all for today's news.
1: Thank you for tuning in.
0: Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at newstotoday at ntd.com.
1: We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.